Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Robbie, you are in Italy right now? That's right. I'm in Tuscany in a villa, getting ready to go to our friend Sujit's wedding. Uh, and... You know, Italy's a nice country, Jason. Yeah, it's not bad. Mazel tov to Sujit. I mean, are you using, not to like invoke Babel as if we're doing an ad, but are you are you using some Italian out there? What's happening? Yeah, I would say, you know, what I learned from Babel has gotten me around. You know, the deeper you go into Tuscany, the more, uh, or the less English you find, the more Italian you have to use. And so, you know, I've, I've made my way around, haven't gotten too lost so far, and it's been beautiful. The weather gods have delivered so far, and it's just been it's been really beautiful, really nice. You sound peaceful. You sound That's like you're right. having a nice time in Italy. Uh, well, Jason, I did have a chance, and I just sent it over to you. I had a chance to review your book, which I have to say, I reread it again, and it's freaking incredible. Uh, and so, listeners, you can go to the Lost Debate Substack. Just search Lost Debate on Substack, and by the time this episode airs, you'll be able to find it there. And I talk about why I think the book is amazing, but also give you a little bit of insight about how Jason and I even got to know each other in the first place. So if you're, if you're fans of this pod, you'll probably find it an interesting read. Yeah, I appreciate you doing that, man. It was fun for me to read. I have to imagine uh, that it'll be fun for listeners to read. All right. For this episode, uh, we have Governor Jared Polis. Uh, we had just had a great conversation with him. You're going to hear that conversation uh, after Ravi and I talk here for, for a minute. Uh, but let's go ahead and start with talking trash. We asked y'all uh, last week for a term to define the opposite of woke. Uh, and wow, I, I think this might be the biggest response we've ever gotten. Like it, we were inundated with emails and with ideas and we really appreciate it. When we say the opposite of woke, what we meant was, if for those of you who didn't catch last week's episode, we were talking about how the Republicans have taken a word that we use, woke, the left had used, and then turned it against us. So we we're trying to say, all right, what? how could we turn the language of the right against them? And that was kind of the spirit of this exercise. Yes. Important clarification. Thank you. And we just got so much of a response from everybody. It was kind of incredible. And we, uh, as a team, went through and picked out some of our favorites. So I guess let's go through them now, Robbie, and just kind of talk about how we feel about these nominees. Yeah, uh, I have a big favorite, but I'll wait till the end to reveal it, because actually I think it's one of the last ones in our notes anyway. So, yeah, all right, all right, see, let's I'm see. curious so, to see which one you like. Hey, Robbie and Jason, love the show. Uh, my name is Brian Mullen. You guys left a uh, challenge for the audience to come up with what is the opposite of woke or wokeism. And I just was sitting here driving along, and I couldn't help but think it's broke and brokeism. The entire party's broken. Their ideology is broken. Do you actually think if they were in charge right now with inflation and gas prices and supply chain, any of their policies 
would be able to be implemented to fix this country? No, because they're broken as a party. They're just pure ideologues and culture warriors. They have no solutions. I, I like the emotion behind it. I'm not sure I quite understand it because broke has more than one meaning. Yeah, I agree. I do. I do understand the spirit, but I wouldn't say that's my top choice. Hello, Ravi and Jason. This is Jen from Keene, New Hampshire. Longtime listener, multiple time caller. I think a words to describe the authoritarian reaction to corporations and people that speak out against authoritarianism would be maybe either crybaby authoritarians or knee-jerk authoritarians because their immediate reaction is to get all butthurt and then clamp down using the power of the state and the federal government. I would say crybaby authoritarians, though, not my favorite. I, I kind of dig that. Yeah, I feel like we're getting warmer, right? Yeah, like, for sure. Like, it's authoritarian is definitely on the nose. It's just a question of, is it too long of a word. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, uh, and you know, are we, are we uh, expecting people to go look it up? That kind of thing. Hi, Jason and Robbie. This is Kristen in South Carolina. The word that I just keep thinking of over and over, it's troll. It's bad faith troll. And I don't know if there's some way to, I don't know, make that more presentable or less name cally or something, but that's what it is. They are bad faith trolls. And how do you combat that? I feel like bad faith is uh, pretty on the nose, and that's pretty good. Troll is more of a Twitter thing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm imagining my dad, who like you know is a spectator on Twitter, but not a participant, who who doesn't use language like troll or my mom, that kind of thing. And and I feel like people of that generation are going to hear that and be like, wait a minute, did you just call that person a troll? <laughs> like I feel like that could be problematic. Right. And then we had Alicia who sent in culture warlords, which, though I wouldn't say I fully am behind, it sounds like it might do well with the gaming community. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Scotty on the fly wrote in suggesting cringe or the cringe fringe. Uh, and specifically, he wrote, as you know, it's a word that is already out there. It's used to describe your drunk uncle when he says something racist. Many of the conservative social agenda is cringe worthy. And when I I see them expressed. I have a visceral reaction. Well, what do you think of this one? I don't hate it. I just don't think it, it evokes enough. Because I think when I think of cringe, I think of somebody trying to be funny, but they're not or whatever. It just doesn't, it doesn't get at a specific emotion about the right that I'm trying to get at, you know? I also think it's a little bit like troll in that it is a social media word of the millennial and Gen Z world. And therefore, if you're not already uh, familiar with that, you know, when you hear cringe, you think of like nails on a chalkboard, like things that make you cringe and, and the connection might not might not be there. Right. Uh, Sean wrote in and suggested deniers uh, for those who deny women of their own body autonomy, deny LGBTQ plus the right to exist, deny minorities and immigrants from a shot at the American dream, deny businesses from having a perspective that differs from theirs. I kind of like warmer. deniers. Getting yeah. warmer, uh, but I, I'm going to group these last two together because I think they have the same spirit, but I, I think one is superior to the other. We had Shannon who suggested anti-American, uh, and I, I think that's kind of self-explanatory. And then Laura wrote in and suggested fake patriots or fake triots, which Jason, I would say, is my my winner. I like fake triots. Okay, I was going to land on fake triots too. And what I want to know is how much of this is colored by 
our mutual hatred coming from a different angle. Yeah, but our our separate biases against the New England Patriots over the years. I I don't think we're influenced by that. No, because I already have. I I I, along with much of America think of them as the Cheatriots, not the Patriots. They're they're (laughs) real. So, but I like the Patriots. Here's the test: like, how do we employ it? Right. Like, like you gotta, you gotta uh, sort of use it in a sentence. Right. So like, yeah. let's, let's take, um, Josh Hawley. Okay. Uh, so, so does this work? It's like Josh Hawley who will shake his fist and urge on people who are about to participate in an insurrection. And then it's the kind of fake treat that popped popcorn, uh, by his own admission to watch the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. I think it, or see, our, I'm thinking of a critical race theory when people are like, you know, trying to make my child feel guilty about American history is wrong. And I'll be like, well, you're a fake shit. You don't want to actually tell an accurate reading of a story. You think we're so fragile as a country that we can't handle the deeper truths. You're a fake shit, not a real patriot, you know? Oh, now I'm really getting sold. That's yeah. really, really quite good. Uh, I like that a lot. Like this is, I mean, what an answer to the refrain that we're just getting over and over again that is sort of some version of why do we have to talk about race all the time? Yep. And it's just, well, look, I mean, that's that's patriotism when you refuse to talk about things as they are. Patriotism, you know, is when we actually deal in reality and try and improve the country. Ooh, I'm really digging this. I think we're onto something here. Way to go, Laura. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped about this one. I will certainly be using it. And I hope, you know, I hope all the people out there just start, you know, field testing it. Send us in more voicemails. Tell us how it worked. Like use it with people in your lives, use it on the internet. If you want to screenshot people's replies to it, if you get in a little imbroglio with your uncle or something on Facebook and you throw out fake trit, let's see how it works. Not that I'm encouraging you to fight with your uncle, but if you are fighting with your uncle on Facebook, just happen to field test this line for us. And look, a lot of other folks wrote in suggesting bullies, cowards, haters, asshats, etc. Uh, <laughs> we, we we appreciate everyone participating. Right now, we're, we're going to try and employ fake treats. This has been a fun exercise. Thanks to everybody who, who commented. All right. Well, I want to focus on the January 6th hearings. Uh, Jason, we've had uh, at least two hearings, and I think we'll have one more by the time that this episode airs. And in the first hearing, we learned a lot. We learned, you know, Liz Cheney, I think, provided a lot of the summary of what the first hearing concluded. One was that President Trump summoned and assembled the mob. And then, as she said, he lit the flame of the attack. She also said that Trump made not a single call to the Defense Department or national security agencies during the attack, uh, said that he was aware the rioters were chanting to hang Mike Pence, but responded with the following sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea Mike Pence deserves it. There's so much more here. You know, there's Barr kind of throwing Trump under the bus, Ivanka trying to distance herself from everything, and then Trump sort of attacking his own daughter, which is interesting. Jason, what are your main takeaways from the hearing so far? My main takeaway is really about how we think about these hearings, because I feel like there's a a debate and in some ways a little bit unspoken in some cases debate going on. And it's really all framed as do these matter? And and I think it's and we talked about this a little last week, but I had a long conversation with my dad about it the other night and I wanted to revisit it because there are a lot of people who are saying 
this is not going to persuade anybody in the midterms, uh, and therefore we shouldn't talk about it. And then there are other people saying, well, that's not the measuring stick. This is about history. This is about making sure this doesn't happen again. The midterms are not the only way to judge whether or not this is effective and whether it impacts people. But then people like Nate Silver make the excellent point of, look, actually in this country, elections are how we judge the public's reaction to things. And there's one in a few months. So that is a measuring stick for this. And I think where I come down on this, is that there's a lot of stuff in here, like, you know, the president being okay with the vice president being hanged in order for him to maintain power uh, without the right to do so. That's pretty darn significant. I have no idea whether that is going to matter in the midterms when people feel like it's over now. It's not, but when people feel like it's over now and they're concerned about things that affect their everyday life. But I don't think that that is dispositive of whether or not this should be happening. I mean, at the end of the day, this is not a political action committee that's doing this. This is a special select committee in Congress, literally just doing the job Congress is supposed to do. And perhaps we're not always meant to conflate the two. I 100% agree. It's the right thing to do no matter what. Like, let's say, for instance, the polling said this hurt us. I would still say do it. But I think this is, I think it can only help. I, I, I don't, I don't want to oversell it, but I do think there are a lot of people in my life who were texting me during that first hearing saying, oh my God, have you seen that footage? And I think something like 20 million Americans tuned into that. I think even more than the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, which had a lot of viewers. So I do think that a lot of people tuned in. I do think, you know, you either believe that this country has a future or not. And I think like the only version of this country where we have a future is one in which people, when given this information, more than half of them are, are appalled enough to hold it against the people who perpetrated it. And we got to, we have to believe in that idea and sell it as much as possible. And this is a bipartisan commission. It's not as bipartisan as I'd like it to be but it is. And Liz Cheney, for whatever we think about her and previous positions she's had, I think has acquitted herself quite well on this commission. And I think the so far this this committee has has done a really good job. We love to make fun of or get disappointed in our government officials. And Lord knows we, we think that there are a lot of people in our party who could message better. But so far, this has been pretty tight. It's been really focused. And I think it's been super compelling. You know, speaking of the bipartisan nature of it and of Liz Cheney, that's that's the other key takeaway, so to speak, that that I have from this or larger takeaway, which is, you know, there's a lot of people who are really lifting up Liz Cheney. And look, she's done a good job. She's been effective. She's making her points well. And I think there's a lot of liberals who are just going, you know, thank God for Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. And there's the word courage is being thrown around a lot. And I want to put that in perspective, not because I'm trying to like bring Liz Cheney down to earth. Like, I don't, I don't care about that. And I'm not, and, and like, if people are excited about Liz Cheney acting the way she is, like, that's great. But I want to put it in the context of how broken Congress is right now and how broken our political discourse has been by things like gerrymandering. Because look, Liz Cheney made a, a calculation here uh, where rightfully she looked at it and said, okay, I'm a Cheney. I'm Liz Cheney. I have my own following, my own portfolio here. And when she made the choice several months ago of whether or not to stand up for her country or stand up for her party, she had, I would say, the luxury of knowing that she does not need a seat in Congress from Wyoming to continue to affect the debate in a major way and that it would in no way end her career 
if she loses that seat, because Liz Cheney is going to be, no doubt, the Republican who corporations can hire as very well-paid speakers about politics without having to worry about people saying that they're hiring an insurrectionist and that kind of thing. Like She's going to do, much like her father did with going on boards and making lots and lots of money in between his stints in public service, she's going to do extremely well after this. And she knew that. And I'm not trying to bring down Liz Cheney. I just want everybody to understand that when they watch Liz Cheney do what Liz Cheney is doing, that is not heroic. That is actually the job. Like that is just Liz Cheney doing what a member of Congress of either party is supposed to do. And if you want to look to somebody and say, well, that's a person who put their career on the line. And again, I think even this person is just doing the job as it is meant to be done and as, as it used to much more frequently be done. Well, a person who did put their career on the line is Adam Kinzinger. I mean, that's a guy who, when he decided that he was not going to go this route way before he was going to go on the committee, he decided that this would probably cost him his seat in Congress. And he's, you know, there hasn't been a vice president Kinzinger. Like, he's not going to go on to just automatically be, oh, everybody knows about Kinzinger. That's not what's going to happen. That's actually what we're supposed to expect from members of Congress. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in between the two positions on this, which is I do think some Sometimes that you could be heroic when it is your job, you know, like I think there's sure. really doing your job. And I think in her case, I think there's something to be said of the fact that there's so few people in her position who've been willing to say what she says, even, you know, including people with, you know, there are Bush kids and whatnot who've been kissing Trump's ass, you know, who have all the same kind of advantages of their family or come from money or whatever. So in a way, like I do respect her for what she's doing here. Uh, I don't want to oversell it, but I do respect it. I do think that, you know, she's probably facing death threats. She'll probably lose her reelection. So, you know, in that sense, I'm, I'm a little bit sympathetic there, but I don't want to oversell it. I'm not saying she's, you know, Paul Farmer or like, you know, William, you know, like William Winter or something like she's better than the rest of her party on this issue or most of them. I'm just saying that used to be more standard yeah. and we shouldn't so easily become so jaded that when we see it, we allow ourselves to get so excited because that means we've lowered our standard and we just shouldn't. Yeah. Well, I think like moving ahead now, we're going to have a bunch of hearings over the course of the summer. I think they're set to wrap up in September. Uh, and that I think gives people running in November a window period to take the findings of this committee and sell it to the American public if they think it moves their voters. I also think and, and obviously that comes at it. It comes at a time when there are more election deniers running than ever in our country's history. So I think this does give people ammunition to use against those people. You know, there's all sorts of assets coming out of this, whether they're videos, their other findings of fact, et cetera. There also is the legal angle of this. Obviously, we're not going to expect anything from Congress on this, given what you need in order to. I don't even know what the rules are about impeaching somebody after they leave office. But you have allegations of criminal wrongdoing here, including the fact that Trump raised like $100 million for an election defense fund that may not exist. That sounds kind of illegal to me. So so I think there's a lot to keep an eye on here. This is super substantive. I'm glad it happened. I'm warming up to the whole thing. To your point about the stuff that's coming out of it, I want to just go on the record now that I don't care what the politics are of indictments if indictments are warranted. And just from what we've seen so far, it certainly seems like the Justice Department should be preparing some things. And I just don't think it makes any sense to be like, well, that may be a bridge too far, even if that is what the evidence suggests. Like, I don't think we should think that way. Yeah, I agree.
There are too many people in this country who see every civil rights gain, every advancement for African-Americans coming at the loss to whites. This moment is so important to understand, not just in light of history, but in terms of the way history haunts. Welcome to History Is Us. I'm Dr. Eddie Esglaude, Jr. Join me in this six-part documentary podcast series as we journey through history to face the ugly truths at the heart of the American story. It's all history. It is a repeated conflict over who counts. Throughout this series, we explore who we are as a nation and what race might reveal about our current crisis. Listen to History Is Us, a creation and presentation of Shining City Audio, a C-13 Originals and John Meachin Studio. Available now for free wherever you listen to your podcasts. As you all know, we use literally every day Athletic Greens. We've been talking about it with you for quite some time. This incredible product, AG1, that has caused me to you know, replace, uh, really throw out my old multivitamin and make it where I drink this every morning. So does my wife. So does so many people in our lives. This week, I have been going to the Ravi method, which is drinking Athletic Greens more than once a day. And that's because it has been blazing hot in Kansas City this week. I mean, I played a baseball game the other night and it was literally 100 degrees. Um, so it's been clutch for me this week to give me that extra boost in a, in a super healthy way. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day or like me this week. Do it a couple times, but that's it. You no need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, now we've got our conversation with Governor Jared Polis. Uh, Governor Polis is an entrepreneur, education leader, and public servant. After launching several successful companies, Governor Polis committed himself to making sure other Coloradans had the opportunity to pursue their dreams through founding schools for at-risk students and new immigrants and started nonprofits to help veterans. Prior to serving as governor, Governor Polis served on the State Board of Education and represented Colorado's 2nd Congressional District. I'm going to add here that over the last several months, Ravi has just been randomly texting me articles uh, about Governor Polis and different innovative things he's been doing that are a little different uh, than a lot of Democratic governors. And Ravi's just been so excited for this conversation, as have I. I've known the governor for a little while, and it's always great to talk to him. Uh, but I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation as well. Governor Polis, welcome to the podcast. Ravi, it's great to be here. Jason, great to great to be with you both. Yeah, thanks for being here, man. Excited to do this. Well, Governor Polis, we wanted to have you on. I, you know, I've been really, really uh, inspired by some recent interviews that you've done because I think you provide a different model of what it means to be a Democrat in 2022. And I'll start with the most provocative headline I've seen about you recently, which was Reason Magazine. Uh, you know, our friends over there is a very libertarian leaning magazine dubbed you uh, or at least they asked the question, is Jared Polis the most libertarian governor in America, which is not something I think our audience would expect from a Democrat. And so I guess I'll start by saying, how do you feel about that headline and where do you think they're coming from? I think we all can't help ourselves, but to like read the comments sometimes on those things. So like a lot of comments like he's no libertarian, he do this, he do this, he do this. But like, um, you know, 
there's only 50 governors. And so if you say who is the most libertarian, kind of the most pro-freedom and pro-choice on all things, um, you know, I'm proud of that. Absolutely. You know, Colorado is the first state to legalize marijuana. Uh, we're a pro-choice state. We protected Roe versus Wade in statute. Um, we uh, really want people to be empowered to live their lives, who they are, you know, and, and bring your full self. And we love everybody here, you know. So uh, I, I think it's I think it's something that I, you know, I'm happy to lean towards, not away from the libertarian party is one thing they're actually they've become more ex extreme lately sadly they dropped some of their planks from their platform against discrimination which is a really a, a sad state of affairs but yeah look there's 50 governors and i think colorado is one of the most pro-freedom states you are you know you can uh, have whatever uh whatever your thing is you can do it here and so i think like some of the moves that you've made i think will resonate with any progressive uh, but really what i'd love to spend some time on are is, is actually to challenge our audience in some ways so you've done a couple of things that I think makes you stand out, not even just among Democrats, probably, but among Republican governors, too. Number one, you've cut taxes, I think, twice at least since you've been governor. But you were also, I think, a little bit faster to open your state up uh, with mandates and closures during COVID than a lot of other governors across the country, while also, from what I understand, maintaining a pretty low COVID rate in Colorado and while increasing the population of the state of Colorado, including my sister, uh, who I might add, who moved to, to Denver during uh, the pandemic. And so I hope she's listening. Uh, but walk us through that. Like, tell us about your COVID experience, what you learned and, and the message you'd have for Democrats as we hopefully emerge from this pandemic. Yeah, it's great to have your sister here, Ravi. Hope you meet her sometime and hopefully you'll come you'll come join us sometimes. Uh, I'm wearing I'm wearing maroon today because the Colorado Avalanche are the Stanley Cup first game tonight. So we're all very excited about that. Um, You know, I, we wanted to empower people with the information they needed to make the best choices. That was our really goal from the start. Uh, I, I think there were some uh, Republican governors that flirted with misinformation and disinformation. To their credit, there were some that weren't. Uh, on the Democratic side, there were some that were, in my opinion, uh, um, you know, too controlling for too long a period. I think what people ultimately want is they want to understand what the risks are and they want to make sure they're getting trusted information from public health authorities about what they can do to balance those risks uh, in, in their lives. And so, you know, we realized early on, we certainly didn't want our state to stand in the way of schools going back. So we had schools back the majority of our school districts all last year. So, I mean, many kids in Colorado only missed about two months, that sort of late March, April, May, three months. Uh, and then they were fully back last year. There were other districts, of course, like in other parts of the country that said, you know, we we won't, we weren't back in person until second semester. So they missed a full semester. But we wanted to, you know, kids learning is important. And the truth is, this is, uh, of course, it's, you know, a disease you don't necessarily want to get, but it's, it is, you know, much more minor for young people and kids. There's no question. It is much higher fatality rates for older Coloradans. And we wanted to focus our uh, prioritization around testing availability. We gave out free tests to everybody months before that federal program. We were sending them out. It was great. People couldn't get them in New York and, you know, they were freely available in Colorado delivered to your doorstep. Um, so, you know, those are the things we did. It was about empowering people first and foremost, good information, the tools you need to set your own risk profiles in your life. You know, I'm not here to tell you whether you should ride a motorcycle or not, or whether you should skydive or not. I'm not here to tell you whether you should go out to a bar or not, right? Just like know the risks and understand them. Governor, it's interesting listening to you talk about that just now. Like there's a couple things there that you said that at least at some point would have been taken by Democrats as like something they would be concerned about saying, right? Like just very matter of factly talking about what the risk factors are for different ages in the population. And then 
talking from a common sense point of view about, hey, look, we're trying to minimize the amount of time that these kids spend out of school. You and I first met, Jared, when you were, I think, head of recruiting for the DCCC. And like, you're a guy who you served in Congress as a Democrat. You're a Democrat who was in charge of recruiting Democrats to run for Congress nationally. So I'm curious, is it coming from the West? Is it coming from business? What is it that helps you arrive at this point where you're like, I think I'm going to put some of this standard expected of my party thinking aside and just say, what do people think makes sense in my state? Like, how did you get there, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I never really liked this sort of group think. I'm, I'm sort of by nature a contrarian. Um, even, even when I was in Congress, Jason, I was um, I was the only Democrat in, in the Liberty Caucus, which was kind of this thing that you know, Justin Amash, who's now a libertarian, he's a dear friend of mine. Uh, he was a Republican at the time. Then he became independent. He was one of the few, you know, vote for the impeachment of, of course, uh, President Trump. I really, you know, held that dear. And I was, you know, in Democratic leadership meetings and the head of recruitment and, and so forth. But I was always trying to bring up kind of new perspectives for them to look at. You know, there's people in public service from many different backgrounds, like military backgrounds, like yourself. There's people who are attorneys and lawyers. Uh, as people that have been, you know, up through local government. Um, I was a business person before I came to government. So I think that that, and I, I was an entrepreneur, so early stage business person, a little different. I never ran, you know, ran a big corporation. That wasn't my thing. I started new companies and grew them and raised capital. And so that kind of dynamism and, and kind of where in that environment that I grew up in, uh, you know, you always want to be creative and innovative. That's what it's all about. So I, I think that's just the life experience I bring to politics. Just always trying to just because, you know, just because people have been saying this for like 10 years. In fact, it's probably wrong. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like like the longer people say it, the more likely it is to be outdated at some point. So let's kind of come up with a new way of, of doing things. Certainly with the pandemic, we just looked at the science. I mean, that's really what we did. And uh, you know, and, 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 you know, and that it shouldn't be used as an argument of convenience by the left or the right. It, it is at different times. It should just be used, taken for what it is to inform our decision-making. And, and that's really what we try to do, whether it was fit into, you know, left-wing or right-wing memes, depending on the time, we just said, this is what the data shows. Well, you know, one other prominent governor in the country who's been at the center of our COVID politics is Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. And I just picked up in the ether a little bit of, I wouldn't say back and forth, but some, I would say some pretty pointed remarks that you had about Ron DeSantis that I think would be informative to our audience. Cause I think we're always looking like, what's the best way to explain the problems that we're seeing on the right. And I remember you saying something like Ron DeSantis is an authoritarian socialist. Uh, and so I just want to pause for a second and say, we're talking to a democratic governor who is being described by reason magazine as a, as a libertarian who's calling a Republican governor, a socialist. Can you explain this critique of Ron DeSantis? Uh, you know, what, what do you, what socialism are you seeing from him in Florida? Yeah, he is really directly involving government policy, not just rhetoric. It's bad enough if it's rhetoric, but rhetoric and policy interfering with the free market and the means of production. So he's saying, I don't like this particular company because they have this policy or that policy, or even worse, I don't like this company because they oppose my agenda. And therefore I am passing laws to damage this company. Um, I mean, you don't even have to imagine it to connect those dots. That, that's what he does. 
very different, very different perspective than ours. I do not interfere with companies' politics. Like I don't, I, it doesn't matter to me. We want them here. We want them to employ people. We have in Colorado, we have you know conservative Christian organizations like Focus on the Family. They probably don't love gay people or Jewish people like me. I have you know two strikes against me, but they have a wonderful mission that helps you know addicts overcome recovery and empowers families. We're for everybody here, right? We just. We love everybody. I mean, whatever you're, whatever you are, if you're a Christian conservative, if you're a atheist, polyamorous person, we love you. We love you. Colorado's, you know, we, this, this is for everybody. We want to make sure you respect other people, right? Respect and love other people. But whatever your thing is, whether you're, you know, Wiccan or Muslim or Christian or Hindu, there's a great Sikh community here. I go to, I go to all different temples all the time. You know, Sikh, Sikh services are among the best. I go to Catholic mass more than most Catholics and I'm Jewish. This is about celebration of who we are. Faith's part of that. Uh, really everything that informs your life spiritually, emotionally uh, is part of that as well. And so I think like part of what people are looking for in our politics right now, you know, we've, we're coming out of a pandemic where everything has felt very defensive, right? We're, we're really just trying to put out one fire after another. We've got inflation, we've got COVID, we've got teacher shortages, and we'll get to the education front in a bit. Uh, but Tell us a little bit about your vision, right? Because I think we're not getting a lot of vision in our politics right now, given the sort of divisions that we have right now, but also the crises that we're dealing with. Like what, given, I think, the strength that Colorado finds itself in right now, what would you want it to look 10, 20 years down the line? Yeah, let me give the, the, the we need to talk about the short term vision, too, because there's some real issues people face the next six months here. And then I'll get to that longer term piece. We'll, we'll, let's cover both right now. The biggest challenge people face face is inflation costs. Um, you know, people have jobs. It's not the kind of recession we had no eight oh nine. It's not that they're lining up for jobs. In fact, it's the opposite. It's hard to fill jobs. But you know, when you're when you're buying bacon or chicken at the store, it costs forty percent more. Gas is you know four eighty a gallon. Uh, I think it's five nationally. We're a little lower here in Colorado. Uh, airfare's gone up. If you're trying to fly anywhere, I mean, it's just frustrating because people have jobs. Maybe you've even got a three or four or five percent raise. But what does that mean if your costs have gone up ten percent? So we've centered our agenda around saving people money. Uh, when I gave my uh, state of the state last January. I did. I, I did a rendition of you know Paul Simon's famous fifty ways to leave your lover. But I did fifty ways to save you money, and we actually had an agenda of fifty different policies to save people money. We actually got even more done. We got a hundred policies done. So it ranges from every Coloradan is going to get a five hundred dollar uh, tax rebate this summer. We cut property taxes. We eliminated the sales tax on items like diapers that people need to buy, so they're treated more like groceries, which aren't taxed. Uh, we're sending out um, tax credits to low income seniors. We cut the cost of a state parks pass, annual parks pass to enjoy Colorado, from eighty four dollars to twenty nine dollars. So a hundred of these, right? And not every person benefits from all 100, but like people can look at it and say, wow, these 22 of them actually saved me like a total of, you know, $3,000 a year. And many of them, some of them are progressive priorities too, I would add, like universal free preschool. What a wonderful thing. That saves families over $4,500 a year. We're in it for the kids. We do it for the kids. We're going to talk about education, but it also is economic. It saves families $4,500 a year, frees up a second uh, member, a second parent to go back to the workforce if they choose. Let's talk longer term, but, but it is important to address the call. Well, yeah, really. Can I also yeah. just point out that you have one of the simpler, uh, and I don't mean that as an insult, but like one of the easiest to understand inflation messages that I've heard, which is, if I understand it correctly, basically boils down to cutting tariffs and increasing immigration. Do I have that right? Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I, and I don't. I, so, so yeah. So here's what I kind of occasionally I try to voice the ideas up to the country. I hope I hope President Biden follows my tweets. I don't know. I hope somebody <laughs> does there in the White House. I mean, I do talk to them sometimes. But I said, first of all, do acknowledge yes, monetary policy matters. They're, they're paying attention to that. Yes, fiscal policy matters. I, I, they should pay attention to that. They are. But the two that they're not even now they're talking about. I saw that they're looking at dropping tariffs. I'm so excited. It would say, and there was an article in the New York Times yesterday. It would save the average family seven hundred and eighty-seven dollars. This is undoing Trump tariffs. This should be easy for a Democrat, right? Trump did this. It was bad. Undo it and it will save families $780. And, and it was so absurd because some of the economists who were against it were like, this will only reduce inflation by half a percent. Well, that's great. <laughs> like, reduce inflation by half a percent. Like, like uh, no one says it's everything. Um, but yeah. And then of course we have a workforce shortage because of our failed immigration policies. Like we are doing this to ourselves. There's absolutely no reason. We have like in many states, like even many of our public pools aren't open because they can't hire like lifeguards and people there. And I'm trying to create a special way to get them back open because people want to swim. But like we did this to ourselves. Like there are people that are ready and willing and trained and able to do the work. Let's just give them the legal permission to do it. So those two things, um, in addition, of course, to fiscal policy, monetary policy, and I'm glad tariffs has entered the picture. I really hope President Biden acts on that. And I hope, I hope that they do more with immigration. Now, I don't think Congress will do it. You, you know, I've been in Congress for 10 years. We talked about, it. but what I, what Biden can do is he should do what Obama did for kids with DACA, with DAPA, which is for the parents of American immigrant kids. So that would be another few million people that are already here, already part of our community would be able to work legally provisional status. Republicans are all concerned. They're all going to be voting and somehow vote for Democrats. No, they're not talking about voting you know, not talking about citizenship. Right now, we're just talking about let people work legally, right? And and be part of building our country even stronger. And so, uh, Jared, just to switch for a second, I first met you, I think, when Representative Cooper invited me to to Congress to speak at a luncheon that I think you chaired. It was, you might know better than I do, but it was a group of members of Congress who'd come together and exchange ideas. And And I can't remember if it was bipartisan or not, but I do remember I don't think I knew much about you until then, but I think I learned that you had you'd spent a lot of time in the charter school sector and was pro charter. And I was at the time was a leader of a charter school, so I went and spoke about some of the work I was doing down in Tennessee at the time. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I think this is one of the things where I might have more significant differences with some members of our audience than on a lot of other issues. So help me out here with our audience. Uh, help explain why it is that you, as a Democrat, believe that charter schools, you know, the right kinds of charter schools in the right kind of environment play a meaningful and important part in our education system? So, you know, charter schools are about innovation. They're a public school with site-based governance. So first of all, a lot of people don't know what they are. So people say, oh, are they private schools? Are they exclusive? Do they charge? Or they're, they're not any of those things. In most places, just to be clear, right? There are some states that allow the for-profits, but they're they're the vast, vast minority. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's, so, and that's fine. I've never been a fan of having the, the for-profits in there. Um, what, what we have in Colorado is they're basically public schools that are have site-based governance. So rather than being governed by a school board, which in a big district like a Denver or Jefferson County, that that's kind of distant, right? Like as a parent, like you have a problem taking to the school board, that's good in theory, but like, you know, there's like, you know, a million families or something in the in, in the area. So, you know, in a small town, that's different, but in a, in a bigger area, this is a level of local control closer to the people. It's site-based governance for the school. Now, here's another thing, Robbie, it's important to say. It's not that it's better or worse. It's like the neighborhood coffee store versus Starbucks. There's advantages and disadvantages to both, right? I mean, you know, the, through the school district, you have good quality control. You have good economies of scale, but it's harder to innovate. 
And what the charter school and site-based governance of a public school allows is a different curriculum, a different longer school day. Maybe they're coming in and doing something different, experience-based learning. Maybe they want to implement the Montessori model. I started charter schools for new immigrants. So it was about uh, language immersion and helping new immigrants learn English. So um, all of those things, which are a little bit harder to do when you're centrally run by a school district uh, and you can empower people. Again, it's that message, Ravi, we're talking about. It's fundamentally empowering. You're saying to social entrepreneurs and nonprofits and maybe somebody who's a principal for 20 years in a school has a great ideas about how to do things. You are free to do it. We are empowering you to, to run this public school and do things a little differently and hopefully better than they had been done by the larger district. I'm going to return for just a second to this libertarian theme, but not in an annoying, like, let's keep talking about you as a libertarian way. It's possible, like, we could go overboard on that. And I bet you've done a lot of interviews where people keep drilling on it. I want to talk about it differently, which is you have talked about the idea that libertarians are sort of way more up for grabs as voters than people realize. And it's funny because, you know, knowing that we were going to talk today, uh, it was sort of on the top of my mind as two days ago, a friend of mine who is like a libertarian, like a lot of people are like, I'm a libertarian. Like this is a guy who regularly tells me, yes, everybody should be allowed to have a bazooka, right? Like, like that's, that, that's who this guy is. And he said to me the other day, he said, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but I think we need to go to socialized medicine in this country. And he was like, I'm still a libertarian and I'm still libertarian about everything else, but this just isn't working. And it made me think about you saying that about libertarians being gettable voters to me, it's like, look, they're going to find some ways in which they say, OK, Democrats are right about that. What are the things you bring up when you're going to make the argument to libertarians like you should be Democrats? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, because I think you're talking about, you know, maybe 10, 15 percent of the voters. Now, that doesn't mean capital libertarian. That's like one or two percent. But I mean, a sizable amount of voters value freedom. They just don't want to be told by the government what to do. Now, they like some of what the Democrats talk about, because we're much more upfront about being pro-choice. Of course, we're not going to tell you what to do in your own womb. I mean, that's absurd. Uh, we're not going to you know, we're open to legalizing marijuana much better than Republicans on that. Uh, generally freedom oriented. What they don't like about Democrats is they say, well, are you going to raise my taxes? So, um, you know, say, no, in fact, we want to cut your taxes, which we have done several times here in Colorado uh, and on these other things. But but you're right. And something like healthcare, care, Jason, I'm actually very progressive, a lot like your like your friend. I mean, I don't talk about socialized medicine, but what I do talk about is public option. And I talk about this doesn't work. I mean, Americans are spending twice as much on healthcare as every other industrialized nation. And we're in the middle of the pack on results. It really is absurd. There are tons of disincentives in the system. We can do better. But when we're when we're talking about voters that are kind of libertarian oriented, I would just highlight the parts of our message that, in contrast to the Republican message, empower people to make their own decisions are fundamentally empowering and give people that choice. Yeah, I feel like the term freedom is so in the eye of the beholder, right? It's it's up for grabs. Like, you know, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you try not to read the comments, but you can't help it. I mean, I was reading one of the editorials by, you know, a conservative in your state who was just so upset at the idea that you were getting any credit whatsoever for being pro-freedom. And one of his arguments was, this is a guy who has allowed government employees to unionize. And it's like, wait, wait, wait. That seems like freedom. That seems like a choice. <laughs> Absolutely. The right to association. This is a fundamental freedom. Absolutely. The unions are part of the free market. If workers organize, it is a, a valid part of the free market system. It's a freedom of association. If you try to interfere with that or have government rules or laws against 
workers coming together. That, in fact, uh, is an anti-freedom stance. So I think that's a good way, good way to talk about, you know, kind of the rights of workers. Maybe, Jason, let's pivot to, I think, what we're most fascinated by, which is the question, right, about messaging, right, Jason? You're in a state where we now have the luxury because of the good work that you and other people in the state have done of thinking of Colorado as not safe by any means, but, you know, not red. You know, that's what it used to be. And uh, and so if you can not just tell us like what you, Jared Polish, think we should be talking about over uh, the next few months, but also if you can kind of blend into that a little bit of your own version of how you feel Colorado got to where it is now, uh, which is a lot different from where it was 10 or just like 15 and maybe just 10 years ago. We're a state with a plurality, a strong plurality of unaffiliated voters. That's what we call our independent voters. So over 40 percent unaffiliated. And then Democrats or Republicans are very distant, second and third. And, and so we're always thinking about how do we message to the independents, right? The Democrats, mostly with me. Uh, Republicans mostly against me will try to pick off some, but how do you how do you message that biggest group? The biggest group and this important mindset: they're not Democrats and they're not Republicans for a reason. They actually don't like either team. They really don't. They want people who are working for them, who are pragmatic. They're open to ideas from the left and the right. They're not against them, and and some of them even lean left or lean right, and that's fine. But how do you make sure that you're actually connecting the work we're doing to their lives? How does it improve? their kids experience in school? How does it save the money, you know, reduce their property taxes? How did they benefit from a new road that is built in their neighborhood or allows them to get to work faster? So we're always trying to connect it to these real lived experiences of Coloradans that they may have their ideology, but fundamentally they value results, 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 results. And so that's what we try to connect the dots with. We have a segment that we call uh, "Road to the Midterms," and given that you know we're we're heading towards a, I would say, a very competitive and tough election for Democrats. Are there any candidates, Democrats out there, that are going to be on the ballot in November that you want to point our audience to to support or shine the light on? I have my two provincial talking about Colorado folks. I, I hope not. We actually have two of the hottest congressional races in the country here. So um, we have an exactly even 50-50 district. We have an independent redistricting commission. Very proud of that. You know, people have confidence in that process. Uh, I, I won this district by three or four points, but it's very competitive. Our candidate is Dr. Yadira Caraveo. So Yadira, Y-A-D-I-R-A, Caraveo, C-A-R-A-V-E-O. Type it in, helper. Brittany Patterson, another competitive congressional race. Uh, love our Senator uh, Michael Bennett. So we, we got some great folks here and, and we're, we're all hands on deck. And, uh, you know, the state Senate and state house are also up. And in addition to our statewide races, we're certainly focused on those, but I want to thank you about bringing, you know, this, this uh, to the larger audience. And, you know, I'm always excited to visit with both of you and hope to see you both in person soon. Please Ravi, when you're visiting your sister here in Colorado, uh, send us a note and we'll try to get together. Hey, Jared, this was great. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Hope to see you soon. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Governor Polis. Likely you understand why we were so excited to have him on and have you hear from him. For Gravenor, we've already had a little bit of road to the midterms there, but for Gravenor, July 5th isn't here yet, so I'm going to keep talking about it. You can get Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD wherever it is that you buy books. You can pre-order it now. Uh, it comes out on July 5th. If you want to read it now, you can go to jasoncandor.com launch team after you pre-order and you can, you can read it right now. People are having... Uh, 
it's gratifying for me. Very strong uh, and positive reactions to it. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I will reiterate that all of my royalties go to uh, the fight against veteran suicide and veteran homelessness at Veterans Community Project. So go wherever it is that you buy books and buy Invisible Storm. I appreciate it. For voicemails, hey, this was really cool. Everybody uh, writing in or, or calling and letting us know what they think. Now you can call and let us know what you think about what Governor Polis had to say, because it probably sounded a little bit different than your average Democratic politician. Or you can call or write in and let us know what you think of Ravi and I's conclusion that fake triots was the best of the options that we went through. Maybe there's another option we hadn't considered, or maybe we just completely missed something on one of the ones we brought up. Either way, let us know. Finally, you can let us know uh, who you've been talking to for your Pledge to Persuade campaign, uh, which is you talking to your friends and bringing them around as we get close to the midterms and letting us know what's working, what's not. The phone number is 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. And you can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. I mean, the dude is in Italy right now for a wedding. I would think if you haven't been following him before, now's the time. And our show is at Majority 54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanile. Theme music provided by Kimmet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana King. Jared, I'm going to squeeze one last baseball question in. I know you're a baseball guy. I know that the Democratic baseball team in Congress uh, is hurting with you not being there. My question is, in what year are the Rockies going to contend? I mean, they got Chris Bryant. I mean, what's going to happen there? You know, anything can happen. This year, we have the avalanche in the Stanley Cup right yeah. now. So very <laughs> it's the um, only political answer you've given. <laughs> exactly. No, but I, as you know, I am a baseball guy. So I, I uh, we love going to Rockies games and, and it, it's fun no matter what. But we have some good uh, talent coming up in the minors. We have done some trades that have positioned us with some upcoming talent, good scouting organization. Um, so look, if everybody can stay healthy, a pitching is always a challenge at, you know, a mile above sea level. And we're sometimes last year, for instance, um, we were two different teams on the road and at home. And we were actually um, uh, just totally different teams. It requires different kinds of balls. So anyway, I think we're building. Uh, hopefully we'll be a contender. You never, you never know. Maybe after all-star break, we'll turn it around and we'll be a contender this year. You never know. Awesome. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva Lucas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.